Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. G'day everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Australian Military History Podcast. With victory in the Lay Salamoa campaign, as told back in episode 38, the Allied forces were now free to begin the next phase in MacArthur's plan to establish an airfield in the region so that direct air support could be provided in the upcoming operations in northern New Guinea and New Britain. Next in the Allies' line of sight was Finchhaven. The Lay Salamoa battles, although tough and bloody, were completed sooner than the top brass had planned for. This was a good thing and presented an opportunity for an early strike against Finchhaven. The problem was, though, due to the unexpectedly rapid victory at Lay, the plan for advancing on Finchhaven was not fully developed, but the opportunity was there for the taking if the Australian commanders could throw something together quickly. Get it right, and they could be in for a cheap win. Get it wrong, and, well, that probably doesn't bear thinking about. But before we do any sort of thinking, don't forget to check out the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com for any associated maps and photos, and check us out on Facebook and Instagram for interesting little bits and pieces. And drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail if you wish to suggest a topic for a future episode or if you just want to say good day. Well, I've done it again. I thought to myself, I thought, self, that Battle of Finchhaven would make a good episode. And self was almost right. It turned out to be a fantastic subject to cover. But self was also wrong. In the end, it was never going to fit into one episode. Who wants to guess how many? I'm taking bets for all those who want to wager and the result will be announced at the end of the third and final episode. Oh, wait. Anyway, this is part one of the Battle of Finchhaven, where we will cover the plan and the landing. In the following episodes, we'll look at the major battles that occurred under the overall Finchhaven umbrella, as what was supposed to be a fairly simple operation started to look a bit shaky. By September 1943, Australia had been at war for three years. They were no longer novices at this war thing, and neither were their commanders. By and large, the cream had risen to the top and the Australian Army now had battle-hardened, experienced men at the top. So when the opportunity to advance on Finchhaven presented itself, they weren't totally without a plan. If the preceding years had taught them anything, it was that a basic contingency plan was always a good idea, not only to salvage a situation if things go wrong, but to also exploit unexpected success. Finchhaven was always going to be taken at some stage, and there was a broad plan in place. Basically, General Edmund Herring, commander of Australia's I Corps, had a rough idea that one brigade from the 9th Division would capture Finchhaven and then the rest of the 9th would push on to Bogajim while the 6th Division would push on to Medang. But that was about the extent of the plan. And fair enough, the fighting was still going on at Lay, so they couldn't really plan much more until the fight had been won. They'd need to know how many troops were available to them and how many Japanese troops they may be facing. They couldn't know this at the time. As the capture of Leia came closer, more detailed planning was gotten underway. The American in charge of the US Navy assets, Rear Admiral Barbie, B-A-R-B-E-Y, not like the doll, reckoned he wouldn't have sufficient landing craft for at least four weeks after Leia fell. 
A bit of pressure from MacArthur and Blamey convinced Barbie he could do it in 10 days. Blamey had his doubts about the ability of a single brigade to seize Finchhaven, and so he requested Herring to land a second brigade after the main assault force had landed and secured the beachhead. But it wasn't only the higher level commanders who knew Finchhaven would be a target sooner rather than later. The 9th Division commander, General Wooten, had an inkling that he might be ordered to take Finchhaven a short notice, and so he ordered Brigadier Victor Windayer, commander of the 20th Brigade, to have a bit of a squeeze on the map as it may be of interest to him a bit later. So, when Herring arrived at Wooten's headquarters at Ley shortly before midnight on the 17th of September, warning orders had already been issued. Windayer had been informed earlier that afternoon that his brigade would be required for an amphibious landing very soon. He was also informed that a planning team from his brigade would be required to attend a conference at Wooten's headquarters the following morning. So when 9am rolled around on the 18th, Corps, Division and Brigade staff were all assembled with the basics of their part in the coming battle pretty much already sorted. Herring had little more to do than confirm what his plan was and who would be doing what. This is a good example of why the Australian Army was such an effective fighting force in World War II. Even while conducting one battle, each level was already thinking about the planning for the next bit. It helped keep the momentum flowing and restricted the time which the Japanese had to prepare for the next assault. The downside to this rapid movement from one battle to the next is that it doesn't allow time for detailed intelligence to be gathered. The New Guinea Force Intelligence Unit had put the numbers of Japanese troops at Finchhaven at around 2,100 initially, but reduced that to 350 after the fighting at Ley. But on the 18th of September, I Corps reckoned it was somewhere between 350 and 1,800. 9th Division said it was likely 1,500 to 4,000. So quite a discrepancy between the lowest estimate of 350 to the highest at 4,000. But Window only received the core estimate and made his plans on the basis of facing 1,800 Japanese at the most. Even Division's estimate of 4,000 would prove to be woefully short of the actual number. Wooten still believed that the task at hand was beyond a single brigade, and his preference was to use the Division, less one brigade. Herring advised him that MacArthur would only allow the initial landing to be carried out by one brigade, having regard to the expected enemy numbers and the Navy's available landing craft. The initial fighting would be a brigade show, and 20th Brigade would be the ones to do it. They'd had experience with amphibious landings during the fighting at Ley, so wouldn't need to undergo training which would delay the operation. Herring had settled on a beach well to the north of Finchhaven for a couple of reasons. The only other option was a beach to the south of the Mapu River which would put the river between them and Finchhaven. The crossing would be problematic, particularly if there was even a small Japanese force holding it. Secondly, it was thought that the bulk of the Japanese forces would be expecting an attack along the coast from the south, near Langmak Bay, and would subsequently be pointing most of their hardware in a southerly direction. Landing to the north, it was hoped, would cut the Japanese supply and withdrawal route. The beach for the landing was designated Scarlet Beach, and it was decided that the landing would take place at night as a daylight landing would leave the landing craft susceptible to Japanese air attack. Lieutenant Commander Adair of the US Navy advised that on the 22nd of September the moon would rise at 25 minutes past midnight. Windale wasn't too sure about this. Even in daylight, the Navy had put his men ashore on the wrong beach in past battles. A night landing didn't seem to improve their chances of being put ashore at the right spot. Adair assured him it would be okay. The beach was the only one along that part of the coast. The rest of the coastline was cliffs up to 20 feet high and surrounded by coral reefs. I'm sure that made Window feel ever so much more comfortable. 
Another thing that caused Wendo a bit of concern was that they weren't 100% sure if the beach would be heavily defended. As the only beach in the area, surely the Japanese would put some kind of garrison there, just in case. A scouting party had been put ashore during the night of the 11th to 12th of September, but apart from confirming that there was no artillery in the area, they weren't able to give anything of much use regarding machine guns and troops. Wendell was also ordered to prepare to take Sattelberg, just to add to his workload. He suggested that a battalion should move up from Ley along the coast to convince the Japanese that an attack was indeed coming from that direction. This was agreed to in principle, but it was agreed that the battalion wouldn't move until Wendell's brigade had landed, in case it alerted the Japanese that there were doings of transpiring. Wendell outlined his plans to Wooten on the 18th of September. Basically, the 2nd 17th would land on the right, 2nd 13th on the left, the 2nd 15th coming ashore after the beachhead was secured. They would then turn and head south towards Finchhaven. Neither he nor Wooten were happy about the nighttime landing. At a conference later that night, Window and Wooten requested that the landing be conducted shortly after first light as the troops would need to advance into thick jungle. Adair persisted, not wanting to have his ships unloading supplies in broad daylight. In the end, a compromise was reached. The landing would go in at first light, but instead of landing 20 days' worth of supplies, Adair's sailors would only have to land 12 days' supply of ammunition and 15 days' supply of ration. Wooten insisted that the first resupply mission would need to take place five days after the landing to ensure the remaining stores were ashore long before his men would need them. On the 19th, Blamey decided that air attacks around Finchhaven and Scarlet Beach in preparation for the landing would only alert the enemy that an attack was coming from that direction. As Surprise was a key opponent of the attack, this would be a bad thing, and so there would be no air attacks around the area. But that didn't mean that the air force was of no use. They could in fact reinforce the deception that the attack would come from the south while simultaneously reducing the Japanese ability to repel the invasion. They were directed to strike airfields and supply dumps between Wewak and Finchhaven, which would only further convince the Japanese that the battalion heading out from Ley was a genuine attempt to take Finchhaven via an overland attack. The greatest concern was the Japanese Navy. Surveillance aircraft flying over the area on the 20th of September photographed 23 naval vessels, including nine destroyers, in Rabaul Harbour. It was also believed that one submarine was operating in the Vityas Strait with another two or three in the Solomon Sea. These submarines could do significant damage to a convoy of troops, and so the naval task force included seven sub-chasers. Rear Admiral Barbie only just managed to get all his vessels, including destroyers and the landing craft, to lay in time. Many had to be brought around from Milne Bay and from Boona. Japanese surveillance aircraft were still flying in the region, and so the ships were provided with fighter aircraft cover to chase away any nosy Japanese planes. Another downside to the short time frame given to launch the operation was that there was insufficient good aerial photos of the area which the troops were supposed to attack. On the 21st, there was a near constant stream of commanders from all levels calling into brigade headquarters to view the handful of photos available. Another vital piece of equipment was also in short supply, maps. Just before the brigade went on board the landing ships, 20 good maps arrived, but most of those went to the artillery so they could accurately plot their fire. The poor buggers who had actually traversed the area were left with nothing. You can probably figure out how they felt about that. Imagine you're in a place where you've never been, you've got a rough idea of which way you're supposed to go, but you've only got the vaguest idea of what lays between you and that position. There's thick jungle and hills, so line of sight navigation is out of the question. That would all be bad enough but throw in some fanatical enemy soldiers hoping to kill you 
and the prospect must have been just a little unnerving. But regardless of this, the troops began embarkation of the slower craft at Ley in the afternoon of the 21st. Nine Japanese bombers were spotted while the brigade was loading onto the LCM and LCVs, but the fighter cover moved quickly to intercept them and they were driven off. A further message was received on Barbie's flagship, Conningham, that the coast watchers had seen more Japanese aircraft approaching at about 7pm. Barbie considered postponing the whole operation until the next day. But with troops keyed up and sorting themselves into the ships, Windar convinced Barbie to continue as planned. They pulled Adelaide at 7.30pm and made their way towards Scarlet Beach, shadowed by enemy aircraft the entire way. Scarlet Beach was a small indentation in the coastline, making a well-defined bay with headlands at either end. It was about 600 yards, 550 metres long, and about 30 to 40 feet, 9 to 12 metres deep. The sand was firm and could take the weight of an LST. At the northern end was the mouth of the Song River. On the south was a small headland and then a small cove, which the Siki Creek flowed into. Ravalli was at 2.45am. The two companies of the 2nd 17th, which would land to the north, and the two companies of the 2nd 13th, who would land to the south, moved into the landing craft shortly after. The right company of the 2nd 17th, under Captain Sheldon, were to land as far north as possible, on the other side of the Song River, to seize North Hill, the dominating feature covering the entire beach. The left company of the 2nd 13th, under Major Handley, was to land in Siki Cove, and moved south to take Aunt Point, the dominant southern feature. For 11 minutes before the landing, the five destroyers of the convoy bombarded the shoreline from 5,000 yards. It was still dark at this stage, so the explosions not only softened up the defenders, but also provided a beacon for the landing craft to aim at. Unfortunately, this didn't help in the final wash-up. Remember how Adair had assured Blamey and everyone that his navy could land the Australians in the right spot, even on the darkest of nights? Well... It turned out that they struggled to do it even in the dim light of pre-morning. As Windeyer said later, the whole wave beached much to the left of the appointed places. Most of the assault troops were thus landed in Siki Cove or further left on the southern headland of the bay at Aunt Point. End quote. It must have been a bit difficult to distinguish between a 600-yard beach and one of about 50 yards. And to make things worse, the barges didn't hit the beaches in the correct order, so the companies, which should have been on the north, were in the middle, and those that were supposed to be in the middle were north or south of other companies. So all in all, when the troops hit the beaches, they became hopelessly mixed up in the darkness. The saga of one of the 2nd 13th platoons gives a good illustration of the confusion of the landing. Number 4 barge was to carry the men ashore, as well as towing a second barge, which had broken down the night before. Because of the tow, both barges were slower than the rest of the landing force. With everyone else moving forward, the driver became disoriented and lost. The protective barrage then gave him something to aim at, and when that was ceased, he was again lost in the darkness. The barges taking the leading waves then opened up with machine guns to support their own troops, and once again, barge 4 had something to aim at. The wave leader then returned and hailed them. Barge 4 was ordered to release its tow and proceed to shore, while the troops in the barge being towed were transferred to the lead barge. During this process, someone yelled, Look out, you'll run us down, put her hard to the left. Turned out the second wave, in the much larger LCI, was arriving. The coxswain swung the barge around and headed to the shore. But it wasn't where it thought it was, and soon they came to a halt with a grinding shudder on some rocks off the headland at Aunt Point. The ramp was slowly lowered, so as not to upset the delicately balanced vessel, and the troops had to then clamber their way to shore, slipping and stumbling over the rocks, occasionally falling into deeper holes, and coming up spluttering and swearing. 
Finally, they got to shore and headed into the jungle. I think that's what is known in official circles as a complete balls-up. But maybe by this stage of the war, it had come to be expected that landings were never going to go according to plan. All of the attacking units had been told that no matter where they land, their immediate objective was to move inland, wipe out any defensive posts and secure the landing area. Reorganisation could always occur once things settled down a bit. The first wave of landings generally didn't attract too much Japanese attention. Captain Huggett's platoon of the 2nd 13th Battalion were the only ones to attract serious opposition near the mouth of the Song River. Enemy machine guns opened up as the men waded ashore, leading to a short, sharp engagement during which the machine guns were silenced. Huggett held the captured ground until the 2nd 17th got themselves organised and headed north to take their assigned objective. Huggett then led his men to the south to join up with the rest of the 2nd 13th. One reason why the first wave didn't receive too much resistance was the fact that they had landed in the wrong spot. For most of the second wave, this was the case. The first wave was supposed to secure Scarlet Beach and its jungle fringe. This hadn't happened by the time the second wave came in, despite also being landed south of where they were supposed to be. Kneeling beside the landing ramps, they could hear the rattle of machine gun bullets hitting the other side. One of the men in those landing crafts described the experience. We were the second wave this time, and we expected that the first wave of diggers would have done over the Japanese before we hit the sand. But the first wave missed Scarlet Beach entirely in the darkness and ran into Siki Cove and onto Coral further south. Our wave, also of six or eight LCIs, ran into the cove, but our boat hit Coral with a jarring, creaking crash on a small headland between Scarlet Beach and Siki. One gangplank was immediately out of action and we began jumping off the other. Odd sniping shots snapped out from the shore. To our left, a machine gun fired a stream of white traces down onto the beach. Ahead and above us, on top of the headland, about 100 feet away, a Japanese machine gun opened fire with traces. Its first burst went high into the air, the second into the water beside the boat. The third burst crashed over my head and hit two men behind me. I heard them cry out as I jumped onto the coral and splashed through a pool or two to the beach. End quote. As always, in among the fighting men were perhaps the bravest of all those who wear the uniform, the stretcher bearers. In his account of the landing, signalman C. Tyg of the 2nd 13th showed that even while the landing was taking place, the stretcher bearers were in the thick of it. Abruptly, our signal sergeant ordered us to ground and down we went to the sands awash with surf. Dimly, I was aware of seawater washing over my boots and swirling around my chest. Nearby, somebody groaned, and glancing quickly to my right, I saw the inert figure of a man, face towards the still visible stars, a stained hand resting on his chest. A little further down from him lay another man, greatly rocking back and forth to the rhythmic beat of the surf. Poor devils, you think. And then, thank God, as a crawling figure looms up out of the lifting veil of darkness, a stretcher bearer. You shudder a little as he merely glances at the gently rocking one for already he is in the hands far greater than any mere humans. Next moment he is beside the one who is not beyond his aid. End quote. From this passage we can see a couple of things. First, despite the danger, the stretcher bearers were making their way around the fallen, rendering valuable assistance even while the bullets are flying all around. Second, we can see that not all men are able to cope with the intense nature of war. We often imagine our soldiers as strong men laughing off the danger as they go forward, unconcerned by the nearness of death. But we tend to ignore the fact that for most of these men, they are operating at the extreme edge of mental endurance. Yes, most of them manage to stay in control of themselves, but some don't. David Hackworth, an American soldier who joined as a private just after World War II, was battlefield commissioned in Korea and finished his career as a colonel in Vietnam. In his book, About Face, he touches on this. The way he puts it, every man has a bottle in which they contain their fear. 
Some have bigger bottles than others, but regardless, once that bottle overflows, there's no putting the lid back on. We don't know who this person was that Signal and Tig mentioned. Maybe it was someone experiencing combat for the first time and finding out that they just aren't up to it. Or, just as likely, it could have been someone who had fought at Tobruk and El Alamein whose bottle had finally overflowed on a New Guinea beach in the pre-dawn light. Either way, it's just as sad. The third wave was the only one put ashore in its correct spot. But the disorganisation of the first two waves and difficulties experienced by the third mean that when they came ashore, they were half an hour late. When the Japanese began firing, the pilot of the leading LCI got the wind up a bit and slowed down. He slowed down even more when a Japanese bomber flew overhead. The craft to either side, taking their cue from this craft, began to lower their ramps well out from the shore. Some men jumped into the water and had to swim ashore. Finally, some guns from the third wave opened up and put some fire back into the landing craft pilot who gunned their engines and managed to beach their craft on the beach and most of the third wave was able to disembark with only their boots getting wet. The intense fire from the LCIs as they came towards the beach convinced the Japanese that they would be better off somewhere else. This proved to be a great advantage to the Australians as they could focus on getting themselves reorganised and soon troops were beginning to cut paths through the kunai grass and preparing to move inland as soon as the orders were given. Now, given that I've just been somewhat unkind in regards to the performance of the American sailors so far, you may well say that I'm just a biased Australian taking the mickey out of the Americans' efforts at landing the Aussies. And to be honest, you're probably right. But before I move on, I'll leave the last comment on the landing to an American. The naval historian S.E. Morrison, in his book Breaking the Bismarck's Barrier, stated, quote, Barbie suggested a mid-watch landing under a bright quartering moon. The Australians demurred, and a compromise resulted, HR to be in the darkness before dawn. Ships to clear the beach before daylight air attacks could develop. The Australians proved to be right. Uncle Dan's outfit was not prepared for a neat night landing. The usual snafu developed. I couldn't have put it better myself. Window came ashore at about 6.30 and set up his headquarters, establishing telephone contact with each of his battalion commanders. But as the headquarters moved forward, about 200 yards from the beach, a Japanese soldier managed to lob a grenade which killed Corporal Apple and wounded the brigade intelligence officer. Fortunately, Window was unscathed. While the supplies were being hurriedly unloaded from the landing craft, the battalions began to move onto their objectives. On the right flank, the 2nd 17th fanned out into the jungle. By 7.30am, Major Pike's company was pushing towards Kataka, where they were starting to experience some resistance. Captain Sheldon was north of the Song River, although still unsure of where his 10 platoon was, while two other companies were near the Song River. On the left, Lieutenant Colonel Colvin's 2nd 13th were also shaking themselves out, but they had been more seriously mixed up during the landing than the 2nd 17th had been. The second two companies to land were unable to locate the first two, and Colvin was unable to make contact with the first waves. He ordered the two companies that he did have on hand, under Captain Cooper and Captain Cripps, to push into the timber fringing the beach. A few pillboxes were cleared, and Colvin ordered the two companies, along with the battalion headquarters, to head to the coastal track. He sent his intelligence officer, Lieutenant Murray, to search for the two missing companies. He found Captain Snell of the 2nd 15th Battalion, who told him that one of the missing companies, under Captain DeCamps, had pushed forward to Sikki Creek. Colvin eventually managed to get hold of DeCamps via the walkie-talkie and got the lowdown up to that point. DeCamps had been unable to locate two of his platoons after the landing, so he pushed on with one platoon he had. He crossed Sikki Creek, where he met Captain Snell, and pushed further. They had met small groups of Japanese soldiers, and Lieutenant Appleton had been killed. 
The platoon was now led by Sergeant Crawford, and he had set them up on the north bank of the creek. At this stage, Murray had caught up with the camps and informed him of what the rest of the battalion was up to. Hearing movement off to their left, Crawford's platoon got ready for a fight. Fortunately, Lieutenant Hall appeared with one of the missing platoons, and not long after, the third platoon came in under Lieutenant Angel. The camps deployed his platoons on each side of the Kataka track, and as they had somehow all managed to reach that day's objectives, that's where they stayed. The other missing company, under Major Handley, had landed at the base of the cliffs between Sikki Cove and Aunt Point. He too was missing one platoon, but scaled the cliffs with the two platoons he had. He was unable to contact either battalion or brigade headquarters, and so Colvin wasn't aware of Hanley's position until about 11.30. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Mayor's platoon, which had landed to the south of Hanley, upon his own initiative, led his men south and was able to take the launch jetty and the north end of the airstrip without meeting any opposition. At about 6.30am, Major Cripps Company, on the northern flank of the 2nd 13th, was ordered to capture Zag along the track to Jivanang. He was told that the creek on his right was Sikki Creek, and he figured he'd just have to follow that and he would reach his objective. But it wasn't Sikki Creek, but another small creek which led towards Kataka. Oops. After only about 150 yards along the track, a Japanese soldier tossed a grenade at the advancing Australians and killed three and wounded another three. After dealing with that situation, they advanced about another 60 yards until they were fired on and another two men were killed and one more wounded. But Cripps wasn't able to attack straight away because he could see Captain Pike and his men of the 2nd 17th. They were too close to the Japanese to enable Cripps' men to fire without risk of hitting Pike's men. So, from the 2nd 13th perspective, two and a half hours after landing, the camps was holding the track where it crossed Sikki Creek, Cribs was near Kataka taking fire, Cooper was pushing towards Heldsback Plantation, and Hanley was still unaccounted for. The reserve battalion, the 2nd 15th, under Lieutenant Colonel Grace, landed in much the same disorder as the rest of the brigade. Now, on the upside for them... As the reserve battalion, they weren't actually required to secure the beachhead or push forward. But they did. Grace was unaware of where two of his companies were. Anyone seeing a pattern here? Captain Christie and Captain Snell were lost somewhere, and as we've seen, Snell was actually pushing on towards Kataka and met up with the camps. Christie was also in the vicinity of Kataka. Grace concentrated his other two companies, as well as battalion headquarters, in an area between Scarlet Beach and Kataka. So I think that's a pretty good place to leave episode one. I don't know about you, but my brain is pretty much frazzled by trying to figure out who's where and what they're doing. And there's only so much frazzle my brain can handle. At this point, the landing phase is more or less complete. It was far from a textbook amphibious landing, but by mid-morning, most of the companies had been located and the beachhead was secured. But that was the easy part. Now the men of the 20th Brigade had to take on the prepared Japanese positions at Kataka and then move on to even more hard fighting. But we'll cover that in the next episode.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.